Well, good morning. Uh, man, I, I get so excited when we start a new series. I, uh, it's not that I get tired of the old one or anything, but uh, hopefully you guys all got one of these when you came in. If you're not, they're all right by the front. Um, so these are our, our gift to you guys. Um, when I told people we're, we were ordering these again, everybody was like, oh, sweet. Because I think the last time we did this was in Ephesians. And so hold on to this. Like, bring, take, we're not gonna, last time we tried to store them here, uh, that didn't work, okay? I'm just telling you it didn't work, okay? So take them home, bring them back. You're allowed to write in your Bible, okay? Um, and if you were discouraged from doing that, we have given you our Bible, and, and you can read in that, all right? So it's the ESV translation, so it might be a little bit different from what you have at home. It's fine. It's, it's God's Word, and it's, uh, it's great. Um, it's actually First Peter, Second Peter, and Jude, so we're not going through all of that. We're going to spend the next nine weeks in First Peter. So it's five chapters, okay? Um, and then this is going to run us right into Christmas series, which I know, I know I just said Christmas, and we're in like summer still, I think. Are we still in summer? I don't know. Um, so, so bring a pen. We're going to circle stuff. We're going to underline stuff. I mean, like this is, and honestly, I would will, I will just start off saying this morning that like as I um, been studying First Peter and, and preparing for this, you know, this very first one, well, Brian Smith outlined the series, and, um, and, and so then I, I got it, and so now I'm, like, looking at it, and I'm, like, starting to write the sermon, and, and this first one's titled A Living Hope, and, um, and I started thinking about the word hope, and, and as I went through First Peter, I went, I did not know what hope was. I mean, that's literally that, like, what I thought was hope was, is not biblical hope. And this morning we're going to talk about it because what do you think of when you think of hope? I mean, I, I think um, of doubt. Like that's what, like hope to me is like a weak word. And, and I know there's scripture that says faith, hope, and love, and we sing about hope. And there's, you know, and like hope is a very Christian word, but I feel like it's weak. And I've been asking my, my kids and my wife, they, I'm like, what, what's hope? <laughs> like why am I writing your sermon for you, you know? But really, think about it for a second. What is hope? What, what do we mean when we say hope? Because I, I think we use it in vastly different ways. I hope tomorrow it doesn't rain. I hope the humidity breaks again soon. <laughs> I, I hope I get a job. I, I hope... I find a spouse. I hope, right? Like we hope in a bunch of random things that we have no measure of control over, no real probability. I mean, it's basically crossing our fingers. And maybe we're, we're hoping that like the, the, the karma that we have comes back on us, right? Like all of this hope is the world's hope. It's not biblical hope. And so I've been wrestling with this because I'm like, well, then what is biblical hope? <laughs> because that's how I've understood hope. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, and, I, and I struggle because I'm like, oh, well, hope is, is hope in eternity. And hope, I'm like, well, isn't that faith? Isn't that me saying I, I trust and I have faith in God? That there's, there's more certainty to faith. I like faith. <laughs> faith. Faith is like more concrete. Hope is this like, ooey-gooey, emotional, doughty thing. It seems weak to me. 
So I'm just telling you, I'm just, I'm just peeling back what I've been going through for the last uh, week or so as we, as we dive into this. And, and what we're going to see is that first Peter is a letter written by Peter to instill hope, biblical hope, like genuine hope, not a hope that moves around, that is on shifting sands, but a hope that is grounded in God. And that's what we're going we're gonna to kind of peel this thing back a little bit as we walk through it. And I, I will just say, like, there is a difference between the world's hope and our hope. There is. Biblically, there is. And so we're going to step through that over the next few weeks. And this morning, we're going uh, to start diving in. I got I to give you some background, right? Because Peter is probably one of the most qualified people to write a letter on hope. And as God gave him these words, like we're going we're gonna to back up, and we're going to kind of walk through Peter's life a little bit. And we're gonna, I'm going to kind of show you guys that like, yeah, yeah, Peter definitely struggled with hope. And at the end, when he's writing this in about 64 AD, shortly before he dies, he understands hope. And so that's what we're going to get to as we go through this day. Let me start by praying. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that you inspired and led Peter to write this letter to, to those Christians in his day, but to us as well, and that you've preserved this for us because you want us to know that in every trial, and in every circumstance in our life, we can have hope in you and we can trust in you And we can stand when the world falls. And we can endure when the world gives up because of you and you only. You're our strength, Father. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to talk a little bit before we get to 1 Peter 1.1, okay? So bear with me. I'm going to give you guys a little background. All right, so let's just just go through Peter so we can kind of understand where this guy's coming from as he's writing this letter, right? Because God inspires him to write, but he's not like telling him word for word what to write down. He's inspiring Peter. Peter's experiences and personality come through in the letter. It's unique to Peter. Um, So... how did, how did Peter get to the point where this is all happening? Okay, so if you remember, we're going we're gonna to cycle back. Peter's real name was Simon, or first name was Simon, and his brother was Andrew. Andrew was a disciple of John, um, and he meets Jesus. And then Andrew goes and tells Peter, hey, dude, I, we, I just met the Messiah. <laughs> like, this is a pretty big deal. You should come check it out, right? And so that's how Peter encounters Jesus for the first time. It's actually not until a little bit later that Jesus calls Peter and Andrew while they're fishing. And if you guys remember the story, I'm going to, man, I'm going to like rapid fire through a bunch of stories. You're going to be like, oh, I remember that. But my point in this is that we're, we're, I'm I'm trying to summarize Peter's life here so you understand kind of where we're coming from. Um, So they're out fishing and they haven't caught any fish all day and and Jesus yells from the shore and he's like, hey, throw your net on the other side. And Peter's like, dude, I'm a fisherman. (laughs) There's nothing on the other side of the boat either. And what does he do, right? Miraculous catch of fish, and, and they're like, whoa, you know, and, and Jesus says, hey, you want to be a fisher of men. And he calls them, and they leave, and they, and they follow Jesus as his disciples. Now, Peter, we don't know when, but Peter was married. I, I knew that. What I didn't know is that his wife actually went on his missionary journeys with him. I did not know that. I was like, dude, 
Melissa, let's go. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, you know, so he's a Jewish fisherman. He lives in Capernaum, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, probably a rougher individual, right? I think, I think when we look back in history, we think of like, oh, they're Jewish, and so they must have been very proper, religious. Well, I mean, he was also a fisherman, and, and not to say, I'm not trying to demean fishermen. I'm just saying, like, right? Like, there's, there's multiple facets of this guy's personality. And so, so he follows Jesus as a disciple. And what happens to Peter? Lots, lots and lots happen to Peter, right? Peter is a man of great faith, right? He's, he's actually the first to declare that Jesus has the words of life. He declares that Jesus is the son of God. And then he denies to a young girl that he ever knew, knew him. That's Peter. Peter is one who watches Jesus transfigure on a mountain, watches Jesus walk on water. He's invited to walk on water with Jesus. And then just a little bit later, rebukes Jesus twice and tries to correct him. Tells him, like, no, your plan's not the right plan. <laughs> How? How can, he, how can he go from such an incredible high view of Jesus to the place of arrogance of correcting him? You see, and so, so what we see Peter do is he lives this life that is often fraught with doubt and uncertainty and failure and disappointment. And then what we see is that as Jesus dies, shows himself to the apostles and the disciples, and then ascends to heaven, he calls Peter to him, tells him, feed my sheep. And Peter goes, and he's in the upper room at Pentecost, and he's the first to preach a sermon, right? And he then goes and is like, fundamental, like he, he sees the vision, God gives him a vision that, hey, actually the Gentiles are worthy of the gospel as well, like this isn't just to the Jews. And Peter lives his entire life serving Christ and proclaiming Christ. And so what we end up seeing is that he ends up um, getting imprisoned. And if you remember the story, God sends an angel and breaks open the prison doors and he escapes. Do you know that that was just shortly after John, right? So Peter, James, and John, the three that were close to Jesus, extra close, I guess, if you will. John had just been beheaded by Herod. And it was like weeks later, now Peter's arrested. What kind of hope do you think this guy has? And what does God do? God chooses to save him. And then God chooses to bless him to be a martyr. And he ends up being crucified upside down, tradition tells us. And, and so this is the Peter. This is the guy that, that is, his life is not this like streamlined, beautiful little, you know, oh, it's Jesus. Okay, sounds good. Let me just live the Christian life now. This was somebody who was with Jesus, who struggled. Um, so he wrote this from Rome. In fact, at the end, we're going to see that Silas is his, uh, and I don't even know how to say the word, amunesis or something or something like that. Anyway, basically, basically his scribe, because Peter, most people don't think that Peter could actually write. Um, and so 
uh, Silas writes this. In fact, Mark, the gospel of Mark, um, was m- most think Peter's account because Mark wasn't a disciple of Jesus. And so the gospel of Mark is Peter's account of Jesus' life. Um, and so what we see is that as he's writing this from Rome, it's around 64 AD. Okay, now here's what's cool. What you have in your hand here, if I can find mine, what you have in your hand here, okay, 64-ish AD, in 96 AD, Clement of Rome, we're going to go a little like Bible history fact here, 96 AD, so 30 years later, Clement of Rome, he's the bishop of Rome, acknowledges that this letter that was written was authoritative and inspired by God. This is important, and it's important because this is how God built the canon of Scripture, this. This wasn't a church in Constantine's time saying, hey, these are the books we want you to read because we're, you're right, like that's, that's like the, that's how it goes along, right? That's the argument against it. That's not true at all. And in fact, in, in 96 AD, and as we start to see even in 180 AD, you got the Muratorium Fragment that says the same thing that lists off all the books that they acknowledge as being inspired by God, and First Peter's in it. And guess what? In 200 AD, we actually have a full manuscript that is dated to 200 AD of exactly what you read in your hand. I mean, it's in Greek, not, not in English. So, so it's reliable. So when we, when we read through scripture, we gotta understand and we gotta know that this is inspired word of God. This isn't something that we can kind of toss to and fro and go, man, yeah, I like that part, I don't like that part. This is God's words to us. All right. So what's the context? 64 AD, Peter's writing this. And he's writing it as a circular. It wasn't intended to like solve a problem in a church. It was kind of to Christians at that time. And so therefore, it's for Christians at our time, right? It applies. The context is that Nero was the emperor of Rome. And it was, it was going to be a couple years later that he's, well, the story goes that he set fire to Rome and then blamed the Christians, right? Nero was a violent man and, and pointed fingers at Christians often. And so the, while, while Peter is writing this letter, the tide is kind of turning. Things aren't going well. And Christians are beginning to be persecuted. And so that's the context that Peter is writing this in. Not that it's really happening yet, but it's on the verge And so that, as Peter is beginning to write this, he writes and he goes, I want to tell you about a hope, a hope that's not in an emperor, a hope that's not in your lineage, a hope that's not in your family or your relationships. It's not in your job or your success. It's a living hope. We're going to break that down as we go through here. All right, so turn over 1 Peter 1.1, and we'll jump in. So he says, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All right. He says, elect exiles of the dispersion. Okay, the diaspora is that, that Greek word there for dispersion. That was known as when, when the Jews went into Babylonian exile, 
right? They were dispersed, and it, was, and it was actually a very Jewish term. So when he's writing this letter to both Gentiles and Jews, it would have been heard as a very Jewish word saying, you're scattered, you're all over the place. Not because the temple, I mean, the temple was still in Jerusalem, but he's writing to these people who are all over the place. Why are they all over the place? Well, because that's where the gospel has gone, right? Like Peter, those areas... Most people think that that's where Peter had done his missionary work. Um, it's actually like in the north part, well, the south part of Turkey, kind of the north part area. So of um, uh, Israel and into that area. Um, and so what do we see here? As he's now um, sending this letter to these areas, um, sorry, <laughs> as he's... Uh, as he's sending this letter to this area, right, um, it's, it's being received, and he's calling them exiles. That tells you how he sees them, how they see themselves. They see themselves as exiles, stranded by themselves. Um, so, are we exiles? Do we, do we feel that when we go into the world that we are different on our own? That's, that's, how he's, that's, that's who he's writing this to. So then look at what it says in verse 2. He says, you're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter doesn't hold back. He starts off this letter and he goes, listen, I'm writing to you. I'm writing to exiles. I'm writing to you who are scattered throughout this area. And oh, by the way, you're exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. What's he saying? He's saying, God knew about this. God knew the situation you would be in. God knows the situations that we're in. He goes, this is according to his foreknowledge. Like, like he knows all that's going to happen. Our God is omniscient. He's not trying to solve a problem in your life. You guys understand that, right? You guys didn't create a problem and God's sitting there trying to figure out how to solve it for you. We just sang, right, that when we're going through those trials, that's where God is. And that's what we're gonna see throughout this letter is, no, no, don't, don't misunderstand this. Like, God is sovereign. There is nothing that's happening in your life that he doesn't know about and that he isn't controlling for his good or for your good and his glory. And so that's what he's pointing to here. But I want you to look, and this is some really deep theological stuff. Did anybody pick up the Trinity in verse 2? You see, when people go, oh, well, the, the Trinity's on the Bible, and you're like, well, actually, that's not true at all. In fact, what does it say? The foreknowledge of God, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the sprinkling of Jesus Christ's blood. All three of those are important. And in fact, you've probably heard this before, right? The father plans, the son purchases, and the Holy Spirit preserves. 
That's what the Trinity does. That's what the Godhead does. Plans, preser- uh, plans purchases, and preserves. And so, so think about that. Like that, those are the roles. Those are the functions that God has done. And, and Peter recognizes this. This isn't some crazy doctrine that was built, you know, uh, centuries later. Like Peter understands exactly how this has happened. Why? How? Because he went to a good seminary? <laughs> no. Because God is revealing this to us through him. All right, so look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the, hope, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God, according to his great mercy. So he starts off this and he says, This, this whole thing is God's mercy for you. Pity. Mercy. Why? Because we're incapable of affecting our salvation. We can't do anything about it. We are, we are lost, right? Like, and this is, this is where God steps into the picture, and we're gonna see this a little bit later at the end as he, in verses 10 through 12 where he goes, you understand, like, this has been God's plan all along that he's been prepping us. He's been getting everything ready to show us mercy. And so that's what he points to, but then look at what it says. He says, he has caused us to be born again. Be born again. What does that remind you of? John 3, 3, right? Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Unless you are born again, you can't birth yourself again. You can't. And Nicodemus was confused. He goes, what what am I supposed to do with that? How do I, how am I supposed to be born again, Jesus? Through God's mercy through faith and trust in him. And so he says, this is a living hope. That's what comes with this new birth, a living hope. So what is this hope? You see, the world has hope. It's just a dead hope, right? I mean, we, we hope in certain things, and when they don't get fulfilled, sometimes they get fulfilled. Sometimes our hopes come true. Um, sorry, that's all right. <laughs> um, sometimes, sometimes our hopes get fulfilled, sometimes they don't. And what do we do? Failed hopes are huge. They're crushing to us, aren't they? And we take our hope and we go, okay, well, if, if this didn't work, I'm gonna put my hope over here. And then when that fails, then we put our hope over here. And we just keep moving our hope around. And maybe at some point it rests on yourself. You go, well, this one I can control because I can hope in myself and I don't need any of this until he says you need to be born again. <laughs> until you realize that, that, that your sin problem is, is inside of you, not outside of you. It's not the people around you. It's, it's your sinful nature, right? And you start to realize that that hope doesn't work either. And so what are you left with? And this is the sad part, right, is you're left without hope. 
You see, and, and science will tell us the same thing. In fact, in, in my military training, like we do this, uh, and I think I've brought this up before, but we do like a um, prisoner of war training, right? And it's like, what keeps people alive is hope. In unsurvivable situations, it's hope. And from a military perspective, they go, just have hope in something. They really don't, right? And they're like, have hope in something, right? But hope is like actually like, it's an emotion that is fundamental to our nature. God gave us the emotion of hope. It's important. It's really important where we put it. And whether we put it in a dead hope or a living hope. See, and, and so it's so important, right, that, that when you lose hope and you become hopeless, sadly, that becomes unsurvivable often and sometimes too soon. See, so we know how important hope is. Why it's an emotion that is fundamentally required. And our hope rests on God. Not in, I hope God will deem me worthy of eternity. Not, I hope my works are good enough, or I, I hope I'm a nice enough person, or I hope any of those things. Look at what it says in verse 3. A living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's hope through Jesus' resurrection. Not, not hoping in Jesus' resurrection. You guys get this, right? He's not saying, well, I hope, I hope this is all true. I hope Jesus actually rose from the grave. I hope all my Sunday mornings haven't been a waste. I hope what I'm being told is right. I hope that there is an eternity. He's not saying that. He's saying our hope is through Jesus' resurrection. You see, our hope is alive or living because Jesus is alive, right? Like that empty tomb is more important than we think because this isn't a hope that God might do something. God has done something. He's already done it. He's secured it. We don't need to hope that something's going to happen. It's already happened. It's already been affected. It's already been purchased. And it's the Holy Spirit that preserves us in that hope. And so we can go to God going, I hope in you. Like, I hope I have a confident, sure assurance that all will be for your glory and my good. That's the hope that he gives us. And it's a beautiful hope. Look at what it says in verse four through five. To an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So why do you think you have that you're gonna go to heaven? Why is it everybody at every funeral is in heaven? Because we all want this, desperately. The question is, is where is your hope? 
And he says, it's an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Guys, that is beautiful. It's not a slippery slope. Don't, don't fear that like you're going to walk out the door and all of a sudden God's going to be displeased with you. You're guarded. You're protected by faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Yes, get that. Like that, that is such a beautiful thing. We, we have hope because of what Jesus has already purchased for us. And so we can live not with this wishy-washy, I, I hope things work out, cross my fingers. We know what Jesus has done. The cross is empty. He rose from the grave. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. He conquered our sin. And he's guarding us and protecting us and holding us. And he's prepared a place for us, an inheritance that's being held, preserved for us. You guys, what more do we have to worry about? Like, this is beautiful. And this is where Peter is setting the stage because the world is not hopeful. We're going to walk out of this or you're going to turn on your phone and immediately attacks on your hope are going to go. And immediately you're going to go, you're going to get stuck into the mire of the world and you're going to start thinking, I don't know. Man, I, I hope there's something. No, there is because of Jesus. And that is why it's a living Hope. It's beautiful. Look at, look at what it says in verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice. You rejoice. You guys get that. You rejoice because you have hope. You can rejoice in every circumstance. I mean, th those lyrics were, were perfect, right? Like, I'm, I'm ready to go into that trial. I'm ready to go into that season of life. I'm ready to go behind whatever that door is. It's going to be horrible. And I'm not, I'm not looking for it, forward to it. But I know I can rejoice in it because I know that there I will find Jesus Christ. And I will draw closer to him. And I will see him for who he is. And in the midst of our trials, this is why Paul says, man, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What, what, what do I have to lose? Because I have hope. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If you've got, if you've got a Bible, circle, like for me, it's like right above it in text, but circle the word rejoice and then the word grieved. <laughs> And draw a line between them. Because it's the same verse. <laughs> Peter's saying that you can rejoice while you're grieving. Let's get that. These are emotions. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy 
that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, hear this right, okay? And that word testing, is, it's like, uh, I, I'm, no, I'm no metal smith. Is that, that's not the word. What am I trying to say? Yeah, metal smith? I don't know. Somebody help me out here. Anyway, right, like, like when they're talking about gold, right, they, uh, you burn off the impurities and you get pure gold. And that's the point of testing. It's not testing to see if it is gold. You guys get this, right? And this is true throughout Scripture. You're not being tested to see if your faith is going to work out. That's not what he's saying here. You're not going to go through a testing and God's going to go, let's see if they do it. Oh, got another one. That's not how this works. You have faith, right? The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And, and what is he doing? He's burning off the impurities so that even better than gold, you have hope in Christ alone. You guys, there is no greater danger for us than to put our hope in things that can't handle it. And that's what, and the world doesn't know. The world just puts their hope in different things. And, and if we're not careful, we do the same. So then Peter gives them a reminder at the end here, verses 10 through 12. And he says, you got to understand that this isn't, this isn't God trying to solve a problem. This isn't God trying to, trying to fix something. This has been the plan from all history. He says, concerning this salvation, in verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel, the good news, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He goes, this is what all this has been about. It's like, you guys get that, right? Like, like all of this <laughs> was, was God preparing and pointing showing the prophets what, what the Christ, what the Messiah is going to do and look like and what salvation looks like and that it's not through us and that we can have a hope that is eternal, that is not circumstantial. And so when our lives bring us despair, when we lose our job, when we lose our friends, when a relationship is strained, when our kids go crazy, when all of these things happen, you guys, we go back to our hope in Christ. That's where we can find joy, inexpressible joy. Because guess what? Your marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church. God wants it to succeed. You're not the best parent for your kids. God is. The relationship that you, that's strained, God wants reconciliation. And he'll empower it. And your reliance on finances and your job, 
God can provide for you there too. So why do we put our hope in these dumb places? <laughs> I'm preaching to myself, okay? Because we do. And we think that it'll be better, that life will be better if we just fix this, this one thing. And it's just not true. Our hope is in Christ, in Christ alone, and it's a living hope. You know, it's, it, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon is a 19th century pastor, and uh, I couldn't verify this because I went into the, the weeds of Google and couldn't, couldn't get back out, but apparently the uh, Maori, I think, is the language of the original language of uh, New Zealand, okay? Huh? Maori, thank you, Liz. Random facts for 400. <laughs> And apparently, the, the word for hope is, is actually like a swimming word. Like it has to do with swimming. And, and Spurgeon takes this, and, and he, he goes on this. He's like, life is like us treading water. And we're just sitting there, and we're treading water. And we're just trying to stay afloat. And we're losing our strength until we see a ship. And it's, and it's that living hope, a lively hope that that strength wells up in us and we go and we pursue and we swim with all of our might towards that ship. That's, that's our Savior. Just got to make sure we're swimming towards the right ship. Let me pray.